0: Hello, nurse. This is Wacko. Yeah, from Animaniacs, and we'd love to stay and talk to you, but I've got a potty emergency. You stay right here on Sci-Fi Saturday Night. See you later.
1: Good night, everybody. We will
2: begin a mass invasion. We'll tell your people to surrender now and avoid war. Don't think you can. Gonna-
3: It is now time for us to put under our roof. In your sacred duty to tell us the truth, confess,
0: confess, that we can give your witchcraft.
3: You think we believe that you can overrun the entire world? We cannot be defeated. We have never been defeated. That is the message. Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. Five by Saturday night. Good evening, everybody. It's TalkCast213. Tonight, a redefining pain in an over-medicated world. Deep in Area 51 on the sub-level 9, True North slidewalk next to the Marni Noxon School of Retrophlebotomy. I am the Dome. And uh, if you hear the sound of a whine, that would be me in pain. Joining the talk cast tonight are many of the usual suspects. The revered time vortex, our violent soundboard vixen, president of technicalness, sometimes level headed, oftentimes outspoken, occasionally awesome, potentially acerbic, the to put the cat in catnus, whatever that means, and honorary terrarium suspect, Priyana.
2: Actually, I put the cat nip in catnus.
3: There you go. <laughs> oh, boy.
2: Take from that what you will
3: take from it whatever you please. From the stacks of her personal silence zone in the Dank Dungeon reading room, when she remembers to unmute herself, she can be interesting of her both, but never both. The personal assistant to Jeffrey Peterson, friend to robots everywhere, Zombrarian.
2: Well, if it was me, I would put whatever Katniss wants in Katniss, because hello, Jennifer Lawrence. <laughs> <laughs> and we've gone there. And early. we're oh, off. Uh, creepy jar. <coughs> Change to the creepy jar, please. There we go. Thank you.
3: You're
4: welcome.
3: From the core... Of, oh, my God. From the core? From the half. From uh, the cortex. Uh, from the can't cortex stop of the, the signal. The <laughs> vault of comics. <laughs> and our ginger ingenue, the woman best remembered as the understudy for Blanche Deadbois, in the zombie version of Tennessee Williams Dead Cat on a hot tin roof, our very own reanimated Dead Redhead.
4: And I'm having my pumpkin cheesecake.
3: And we would sing happy birthday, but we can't because we cannot afford to. So, <laughs> so we will everybody just think happy birthday thoughts to the Dead Redhead, who today is nine hundred and forty one. I am <laughs> <laughs> our guests tonight come to us by way of Skype, because that's how most of our guests get here, are Matt Lauren, and Diane O'Bannon, who are going to drop in, and they're actually here already. Diane, Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you. Oh, it's great to be here. Oh, you say that now, but we're only four <laughs> minutes in. So yeah. <laughs> We're going to be talking about uh, Dan O'Bannon's Guide to Screenplay Structure. And how it all came together, and the book, and how cool it is. Kriana. how cool is it?
2: It's fucking awesomely
1: cool. There you go. <laughs> great.
2: All right. You can quote that, by the way, if you need to. That's
1: a great fucking review. <laughs> <laughs> You're
2: welcome. You're welcome. I'm, I'm going to post that up for all the internet to see. Actually, we, we will Later. When this yeah, goes out. Pretty early. much,
3: that's exactly yeah. the review that's going on. And we're going to talk about the book in the second half hour. We're going to talk to Matt and we're going to talk to Diane. Uh, wasn't that a song, Matt and Diane? No.
2: Something
0: like that.
3: Don't worry, no. you being
2: senile again.
3: Ah, <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm just thinking John Cougar something. Who knows? John Cougar.
2: What Some sugar melon camp. Oh, yeah.
4: Thank camp. No, it was Jack, yeah. oh, Jack, Jack, and, Jack and, and Diane. Diane? Yeah.
3: No, sorry. sorry, it was Matt and Diane, and that's what we're going with. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard it both ways.
4: <laughs> they take those rocks and sets away from the Dome.
2: <laughs> I feel like that Dome might have been storing his music knowledge in part of his finger. In
3: part of the <laughs> cortex that is now mush? <laughs> yeah, you may be right.
1: Is is, it, is that there. the dome? Is, uh, that, is is that your dome, dome?
3: It totally but, is, Diane. There's nothing I can do about it at this
1: point. But something rattling around in there.
3: Okay. It, it, shaking it way too much at this point. It was.
2: It may have fallen out.
3: And I can't get up. Thank you.
2: Oh, <laughs> Two, three, snap. Flap <laughs> on. Oh.
4: Yes, thank you so
3: much for that Christmas present, by the way. Ah. Uh-huh. I always wanted a clapper for my computer, and now I have one.
2: Well, better a clapper than the clap, okay? Well, I I mean, you can't really clap right now, so...
3: No, I really can't, but that's a whole other story.
2: (laughs) This is going off the rails, you guys.
3: It's been off the rails for a while. About four days now.
2: Wait, wait, wait. What number is this?
3: This is number 213.
2: Okay, so it's been off the rails for at least 212 episodes.
3: (laughs) We did have a good one once.
2: That one time. <laughs> well, when we had Harlan Ellison on, he would not let us get off the rails.
3: That's true. Um, That's
4: true. He
2: basically threatened to gut us.
3: <laughs> so,
4: that, that, that no, that he was going to hammer a dead dog to the door. That's, <laughs> uh,
0: that, that sounds unlike Harlan. I know, normally he's such a peaceful
3: and comfortable guy to talk to. And
1: uh, I would say at
2: least that one episode was on the rails. But the rest of them... I make no promises.
3: We never make <laughs> he's
0: a promises. He's a mellow cat. He's the, he's, the, he's the Jimmy Buffett of science fiction. <laughs>
4: <laughs> May he never hear you say that. I have to say, I think Spider is the Jimmy Buffett of science fiction.
3: Yeah, and I th- yeah, I think I'm with you on that one.
4: So anyhow, so, you, know,
3: you know, it's it's. Go ahead. Go man. ahead. Oh no, I'm good. Okay, okay. so it's the <laughs> week, week after yeah. Christmas, and we're sitting here, and we're all kind of a little burned out by the uh the past week of whatever the hell actually went on. Uh and while I'm not gonna say anything, uh just call me nine and a half at this point.
2: Three quarters. Don't get dramatic. <laughs> So, the
3: reality is, you know, the week between Christmas and New Year's, there's really not much that's gone on this week unless you want to talk about. Well,
2: it's the week between Christmas and New Year's now. Now. Last right. week's news, there was, was still nothing. nothing. <laughs> there, there was still, still nothing. Still going nothing. Going on. <laughs> so, I mean,
3: you know, there were a couple of things happening. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, the Doctor Who Christmas special hit last night. Uh, for those of us who are listening to this in real time. And nobody listens to a podcast real time, but that's okay. Um, And uh, (laughs) for a first impression on it, I'm just going to tell you I was a little disappointed.
2: Yeah, well, couldn't be awesome forever.
3: Well, I mean, you know, what do you think, Dead Redhead?
4: I just thought that it was a bit contrived... Um, which <coughs> has, State I, Manhattan. Ends, <laughs> ends at this point is is starting a campaign that says Moffitt has to go that's all I'm going
2: to say <laughs> I, I don't think Moffat has to go here's what I think I think Moffat has a really hard time with transitions that's very possible because he's just not good at all, all the middle parts think about the second half of last year I loved that shit Except for the, that one episode, and you know why I didn't like it, among other No the comment reasons. about that, but yeah. But um, you know, he his stuff is good, kind of. Okay, look, the eleventh Doctor was not the best.
4: He was not. Um,
2: he had some and good I, points.
4: Do I have to <laughs> look? Look! Look!
2: Let's let's just go over some good points here. Hang on. Vincent <laughs> was awesome. Yes. Amy's yep. Amy and Rory were awesome in nope. general. Well I, I thought they were awesome. Clara's Claire's, well, Claire's pretty awesome. Claire's Claire,
3: I like pretty awesome, but
2: I, I like Clara
4: a lot.
3: Just well, like you never forget your first doctor, you never forget your first companion. And nobody is ever gonna be better than Rose Tyler and that's all there is There to have
2: been several people way uh, better than Rose Tyler already. Sorry. I'm gonna put it out there. I don't like Clara. She Rose has a weird mouth. I just I'm like maybe maybe it's shallow of me. I can't get past the mouth. I can't I can't get past not really liking her version of an English accent. There's just not really much I like about her. (laughs) She's actually on a shallow baloney. The reason I don't (laughs) like Clara is because she doesn't seem real and I feel like Moffat nagled it so that he didn't have to write a consistent character he did that's he absolutely did well, is not that the whole thing about the
4: impossible girl
2: yeah, yeah and i hate that oh yeah he did i want a consistent human person and then um play
3: well, an opposition and when you don't have it it's a problem
2: yeah, yeah. It's only a problem if you let it be a problem.
3: Okay, I'm letting it be a problem. Uh, it's I'm- only
2: a problem. Well, let's let's look at it this way. It's only a problem when you have plot holes the size of a trailer truck, which it <laughs> does. I I know. That's what i was saying. You know, I've He's really you, good at individual episodes. Blink was a phenomenal episode. Oh my god,
3: one of the best.
2: Sure and, and pretty much for the last half of last year, they were basically all just one-off episodes. But when yeah. he gets into these big, grand, series-spanning arcs, they are just not good. No, he well, can't do it. He doesn't know how to tie it together. That's The, the whole, hard. like, River Song silence arc... Uh, not good. good work.
3: And yet... 50 years of the Doctor was not bad. The Day of the Doctor, the of
2: the doctor was, was the doctor. fantastic. Right. At least because David Tennant was in it.
3: Well, and John Hurt.
2: But a touched and, and a rabbit. <laughs> and we got to see Tom Baker at the
3: end.
4: Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Tom
2: Baker good. was just so adorable. He was. Absolutely. And really disconcertingly tall. Did I mention <laughs> that last time? Oh, he's no, ridiculously tall. Because Matt Smith is not a short person, and Tom Baker's just like towering over him. Yep. He's like, is him. this man seven feet
3: tall? Probably, Probably. He could be playing basketball. Probably should have been playing basketball at some point. yeah No, he
2: but shouldn't. my <laughs> point here is that Matt Smith himself, not a bad doctor, he was acting circles around the writing that he was given, unfortunately, and he yeah. was. Yeah. And, and in particular, that one episode I didn't like, he was. And that that writing was particularly egregious. Yeah. Um, well, I've I
3: got to tell you, if we're going to accept this guy as the new Doctor, and we probably should because he's a terrific actor.
2: This guy? <laughs> this Peter guy. Peter Capaldi.
3: Peter Capaldi, who we've seen on the show once already.
2: Twice already.
3: Twice? Really? I
2: think twice. He was in Day of the Doctor.
3: Yeah. Oh, that's right.
2: I forgot. Well, it. his eyes were in *Day of the Dead*. Well, that's Day. all you needed was his freaking eyes and his <laughs> eyebrows. They were powerful. <laughs> They're piercing eyebrows, not the eyes. The eyebrows.
3: Molder. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, we we're, we're sitting here at a point where we should have given him, I think, the proper introduction, or at least not relegated him to the last forty seconds of an episode that was pedantic as hell.
2: But that's always how the regeneration goes. Yeah, that goes. is always, always how it goes.
4: Do I have to again regurgitate what my mother said earlier? Sure, go ahead. Yes, because yeah, it was funny. It was it funny. It all about that Matt Smith. I don't like him. I wanted to do. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: feedback noted. Feedback. Yeah. N- we'll pass that on and
3: appreciated, quite frankly. We'll pa-
2: <laughs> We'll pass that on to our contacts. Somewhere. At the
3: BBC, yes, absolutely. Yes, yes uh, but there the ways. BBC
2: does not stand for the British Broadcasting Company.
3: Well, not yeah. Just
2: the... we have to we have to disclaim that. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it maybe stands for the Boston Beer Company. There it could, it could, if it. there was such an entity. Which now I'm well, going to go maybe out not. and make yeah. one of those because that sounds. Well, amazing. there is a
4: restaurant called the BBC. Be careful! All
2: right. You know what made up for a love it or hate it meh-ish kind of Doctor Who Christmas special. Please tell me. The Doctor Puppet. Oh my god, the they were so yes. special.
3: cute. So cute.
2: Adorable.
3: And we're going to have the link to that so that you all can sit there and just kind of go Oh! Because oh, you really, that's exactly what's going to happen. Puppet.
4: The Angel Puppet <laughs> was one of the cutest things.
3: <laughs> the
2: little <laughs> ornaments on the tree!
3: I know, it was just just adorably cute, and we, we sat there and watched it Christmas Eve. We did.
2: Yeah, we did. And we gathered around the fire, you and gather- by fire, <laughs> I mean the Sony LED TV.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: and we exchanged no, stories of our... I don't know. Our, no, I, don't no, know. Sony- I, I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> you had no place to go. <laughs> <out>. <laughs> I just wrote myself into a oh, corner fine. there. Um, yeah, so... What?
3: <laughs> and if we're going to talk about, you know, the doctors and previous doctors and all that, Kriana
2: Your segues need work.
3: See, at least they are there and I'm drugged up. You know
2: for- what? You know what? At some point though, they don't have to be there.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You could just talk about stuff.
3: So go ahead.
1: Talk about it.
2: David Tennant is lending his incredibly sexy vocal talent. to a BBC radio show called A Night with a Vampire, which is available on their website. I think it's the BBC4 website. Um, But the important thing being is that there are alternative venues for consuming this media, because you only have, as of recording, probably negative two minutes to listen to (laughs) one of those episodes.
3: So we'll put the link up, and you'll be able to listen to next week's show, unfortunately.
2: And speaking of the BBC broadcasting things, you know how they broadcast things? How do they broadcast, do they broadcast things? things? They do. They do it with satellites.
3: And satellites oh good things. Lord.
2: What those satellites okay. are in technology.
3: Space. Okay, so my segue sucks. Um, I'm not giving
2: her a pass for this one. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, but it's an interesting story. No It was Definitely. just a terrible segue. I know, it was awful. I'm sorry. You should be. I, I feel shame. Prostrate can I talk yourself before me. Can I Uh-oh. talk about the UK now?
1: Please.
2: Eh. Alright. So things like solar flares and other sciency spacey stuff. Oh good lord. Do you yeah. have to talk like children? I didn't remember any of the other words they used. Sciencey winecy? Um, really? Rimey whiny. <laughs> No, I said sciencey spacey Anyways, <laughs> there are things in space that they call space weather, apparently. Or maybe they were simplifying it for stupid people like me. Um, <laughs> and I'm okay. not saying they were, but... Stop interrupting with your non-talking points. <laughs> I believe they were talking. You make me talk for longer when you interrupt I me. know, it's cute. Alright, so the UK <laughs> is... Sp- Going to start in the spring of 2014 forecasting space weather like solar flares so that they can respond more quickly to things that affect satellites. Well, that's just crap. If you've watched Stargate, you know they can't predict solar flares. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's (laughs) That's what makes time travel such a bitch. (laughs) Well, I'm, I'm sure that. The team, the SG teams, are going to be very excited because the UK is one of a very few countries in the world who actually bother to forecast space weather, and that's pretty cool that they're going to do that. If Samantha Carter can't do it, I doubt the entire UK can do it. <laughs> Just saying, real science. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Yup. That's our new theme music for anything that's real science.
3: <laughs> that's okay, because I'm just extracting that clip right now for us to be able to use from now on. <laughs>
2: Yay. <laughs> Indeed. Somebody talk about something else. <laughs> we got nothing else. <laughs> oh, we well, do, though. We have one other thing. There was a Sherlock thing. Oh. It was? Yeah, it was actually,
3: yes.
2: that's exciting too. Speaking of things that are a stretch to be on our sci-fi show, <laughs> <laughs> whatever. Hey, it's a Cumberbatch thing. Yeah, we're, cumber bitches, yo. we're Cumberbitches, yo. We are Cumberbitches. So you
3: guys are. Um, no, you're
1: a Cumberbitch
2: yeah. Dome. No, I'm not. See, I'm not going
3: there for that so... <laughs>
2: <laughs> we can't get away from the BBC tonight. They released a season three. Prequel mini episode. Did you say crequel? prequel? Prequel. <laughs> she crequel. tried to not say
0: it's that. It's Dead
2: Redhead's birthday, and now she's old, so she's gone dead. I am. <laughs> I am. <laughs> oh.
4: She's
3: only nine hundred and fourteen. Leave
2: Yeah, That's I know. Right. It's seven minutes long. It's really adorable. It is the perfect season appetizer because you watch it and you're like i need more how how many views does it have on youtube while we're quoting stats i don't know <laughs> just saying. at least three of them are mine. all right i hear we had a poll this week yeah, before we, we shoot ourselves further
3: we've shot ourselves enough we yeah. did have
4: a poll and being, oh, the a poll this year, week? being the time of year it is we asked who people's favorite reaper and or form of death was
2: <laughs> oh, I wish I'd remembered to vote this week. Because if I'd remembered to vote, I would have said "Death on Supernatural." Well, you I love have that guy. And in the majority.
4: Oh, really? That. Oh, we usually do. We usually do. You know, three, two, one. We'll go the other way this time. How's that? Okay. I'll start with our winner. Our number one was, in fact, Supernat—the Death on Supernatural. He is so far, went so far as to send me Death's intro with the Cadillac, and have to say it's pretty hip.
2: <laughs> um, he is really awesome.
4: So he was number one.
2: Um, the show is
3: beginning to grow on me.
2: Oh, <laughs> oh! Wait a minute! Whoa! Uh, back it up here. So, so which part of the show is growing on you? now?
3: Uh, I'm finding it palatable to watch at this
2: point. <laughs> We still haven't started. Well at one point I did look up who who plays death and oh my god, who plays death on Supernatural? <laughs> I don't have a supernatural wiki in my in my bookmarks bar. Why not? Um works, that, would, that would be geeky.
3: Oh, right. Lord knows you're not geeky at all.
2: No. No. Portrayed oh. by Julian Richie. Okay. He's actually played Death in a, in a couple things, or a bad guy. Uh, but, I mean, Death isn't really a bad guy in Supernatural. He's just kind of... There. Um, and
3: here's what... No, I
2: he's just kind of there, and he hates you, because yeah. you're like a bacteria. You're like an amoeba. Gotcha. Um. But, Very- no, he's he's really, really cool guy, and he's done a lot of cool stuff. Um, which I'm looking up right now, and trying to, he was, he was in, I mean, like, he was the ferryman in Percy Jackson, that was one of the things that I saw. He, he's played Death before.
3: Okay, I mean. he
2: he has experience with the role. He he has experience with the role. But if, if you just look at this guy, you're like. Death. Yeah. Yeah. He
4: has a very interesting face, I'll give you that one, from what I saw.
2: And you're like he just couldn't be anyone else because his face—he—he's like got a very thin face, and it, it kind of is—it's it, not skeletal, but it's just like if he lost a lot of weight, it would be.
4: Mhm.
2: And and he, he doesn't have to. You don't have to dress him up in anything. It's supernatural, all he wears is a suit and an overcoat, right? But he's death. And he will eat you for breakfast. <clears throat> And okay. Okay. So, so I want to know two. about the rest of the poll now yeah. Whatever number This two. is the only one that mattered
4: <laughs> Coming in at number two was many of our favorite And that happens to be Death in the form of a little goth girl With a little tiny Tattoo in her eye From the endless Because everybody loves that death
2: <sighs> Not really but moving I on I do <laughs> I love her okay. I love her well, She's easy. adorable She's amazing. She okay. is. Thank you, Zombrarian. Uh, I believe this is by the same person, right? I want to yes. see if like she made the list. What's number three? <sighs> now, now, number three is where it
4: gets complicated because we have a split. We have a three-way split between the Reaper in Meaning of Monty Python's Meaning of Life.
3: Which was hilariously cool.
4: Yep. The uh, Death in... Woody Allen's Love and Death, which was kind of the same death, if you see the movie. (laughs) Yeah. They were kind of the same one, both based on that Swedish movie. Um, And the third of the uh, split is from the TV show Reaper.
3: Oh. Which I was like, really? I didn't think people even watched that show.
2: We did. I know. It was one of those shows that was good, but we didn't really miss it when it was gone. <laughs> yeah, he was good though. He was a good. Dad. <laughs> he was I wanted. Ones, I should have voted because then maybe Mandy Patinkin's character in Dead Like Me would have won.
4: See, I was waiting for somebody to say Dead Like Me. Nobody did. We did have somebody vote for Discworld, the Death in Discworld, which he even has his own trilogy of books, doesn't he?
3: Right. Yeah.
4: And there That's... somebody voted for the Death in Animaniacs. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Or, or in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey Bill and
4: Ted's, you... yep, absolutely and X made me promise to say that his vote was for Judge Death in the Judge Dread comic series. Oh,
3: good. Lord. At least it was the comic series,
2: thank yes, you. Yes,
4: in the comic series.
2: So that was our poll, gang. Yay! And I mean, we managed to stretch that to almost a whole half hour.
3: Hey! <laughs> <laughs> Woohoo! Not Cup sure how course, or why anyway. we bothered to do that but I mean, it's an interesting time we'll of year to something try something for
4: next week. Well, we don't have a <laughs> show next week. week. Right. Two weeks.
3: Two weeks. So we'll stretch the poll out for two weeks, and hopefully, it'll be something that has something to do with something.
2: <laughs> it'll be like, "What's your favorite Supernatural episode?"
3: <laughs> yeah, that should work. Not a problem there. Which brings us to the second half of the show, in which we talk to people as opposed to each other, and dropping back into the show, are Matt Law and. Diane O'Bannon, who are going to talk about Dan O'Bannon's Guide to Screenplay Structure. Matt, Diane, welcome back.
1: Oh, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I was interested in your poll, hearing all the new stuff, because I haven't been following it all. and um, So you run it down for me and what I have to look at and what I don't. I can't be bothered.
3: <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> awesome.
1: That, that's, that's our function here
2: in this little universe that we've created. Glad we were able to help.
1: Well, yeah, but I do like Sherlock,
2: so... Spoiler alert! Anything written by Neil Gaiman, just walk the other way. Hey! <laughs> 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 uh, <laughs>
1: sorry, guys, <God>. sorry. Couldn't
2: help it, I had to get it out. Uh, I had, now I feel better. If, if I had it in, I would have gotten sick. <laughs> See,
0: I was, I was going to mention Man of Steel, but then I realized we weren't talking about things where just watching it felt like death.
4: So <laughs> X, I almost said, "Thank God X wasn't here," or, or but
3: you oh retrieved
4: yourself. So.
3: Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, Man of Steel had to be for a movie to spawn a sequel. It it should have actually been good. It wasn't.
0: Everyone's- that is almost never the case, though. Every, everyone in Metropolis is dead, right? I mean, I watched that last half hour of that movie. There's a scene where Zod and Superman are talking to each other. It looks like they're standing on ground zero in Hiroshima. Nobody yes. is left alive.
3: And yet, there's going to be a sequel. Congratulations. Just, well,
0: well, you know, because Dome, every now and then, like, Zach's side would cut to, like, somebody ducking behind the car. So everybody's okay. Yeah, that, that's good. The die was going to save you when the office block falls on your head. That'll
3: work really well. Evidently, when you take out uh, the 12th floor of a skyscraper and the rest of it just implodes down on it, Everybody's still fine.
0: Everyone is dead. Everyone is It was
3: it was just a horrible excuse for a film. Just a yeah. horrible excuse for a film. Which kind of
1: brings us to <laughs> uh, How to make your films not horrible. How to make your film yes. actually. I feel go.
2: I feel like, I, feel like I, I need to take this book and find Neil Gaiman's address and send it to no, him. No, stop with the Neil Gaiman already. Okay, look, he's written two episodes of Doctor Who, one of which was mediocre and could have been fucking amazing. The other of which was terrible. It could have been fucking he, amazing.
0: He also, wrote, he also co-wrote Robert Zemeckis' Beowulf, which I didn't see. But he has he is co-screenwriter credit on that film as well.
2: And I would like to throw up another terrible.
1: <laughs> <sighs> well, you know, it's really surprising how many writers who are actively working, uh, you know, don't hit it so often. Uh, yeah. And there are a few, as my husband points out, there are a few, um, you know, markers you need to hit on the way to a story that will engage people and satisfy them in the end. That's for those of fun. you who don't know who Dan O'Bannon was,
3: uh, I have one word to say to you, and that word is alien. <laughs> yeah. Because if you saw that movie, yep. that's Absolutely. Dan's signature movie.
4: Yep.
3: I mean, yep. he's totally <laughs> responsible for responsible recall, but that re- screenplay, and that screenplay is amazing.
1: Yeah, it's yeah. really yeah. Uh, it hit it hit every, uh, hit, every hit every marker. Um, the uh, Return of the Living Dead is a pretty good one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Pretty, which, pretty good. For very
3: different reasons, and that's the good thing. Movies. Well, of course, Dan also
0: directed that film as well. Dan also right. directed Return of the Living Dead.
1: Yeah, so that's pretty much uh, mo- most of his. Um, uh, you know, we had he did the total recall as well, but uh, they they changed a lot of that. And uh, at some point, I'm going to get my act together enough to uh, put up his produced screenplays on the on the website, so you can see how he uh, how he wrote them and how they were sold to the studios before anybody else mucked about with them. Which of course, always infuriated him as the writer. Right. You know? Everybody gets their yeah, hands you know, in there afterwards yeah. and, and uh, messes up his concept. So he's, he's, it's he's, really funny. Yeah,
3: yeah, he was a perpetual sniff
1: in Hollywood. Hollywood.
3: So Sure. That happens an awful lot. When we were in terrestrial radio a long time ago, <laughs> one of my favorite interviews was with the writer of, of the movie Electra.
4: Don't For know those
3: you can actually remember that movie. Oh, wow. was no, a, no, not really.
1: But. It had
3: like seven different writers attached to it at one point. And now,
1: mostly, you know, most often this is a total disaster, but there exactly. are places where it works well.
3: And in so this case, you, when we were talking to him about it, and I said, you know, how does it feel when you're number four out of seven who have, you know, been into this script? And he goes, I didn't really care. I got paid for it, at which point I realized he didn't really care.
1: Oh, sure. Well so with the movie can- like Go ahead, Matt. And well, with a movie
0: like that, I mean that happens more often than not. It's not like, you know, Aaron Kruger's not home one night and just sits up and says, I cannot control my muse. I, I must write Transformers three. You know, that
1: doesn't
4: happen.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, they they drive they drive a you know, a Brinks truck full of money up to somebody's house and say, Hey, we bought the movie rights to Chips Ahoy. Turn it into a script for us. So, you know,
1: a year later, you get Chips Ahoy the movie. and Which,
3: which is how Battleship actually happened.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, he's not, yeah, he's not joking. Uh, Dan, Dan once took a meeting with the guy who was very distracted because he he had what he was sure was the last franchise, so he couldn't be bothered to talk about what Dan was there for. Uh, he, the last franchise ever possible was the Hot Meals movie. Yep. This was like... 20 years ago, of course.
0: I remember reading stories for three or four years about them trying to develop a Stretch Armstrong movie. And yes. His, and <laughs> his, his, his arms stretch long. That doesn't take four years to figure that out, really. You know? and that's But that's, you know... A lot of it has to do with... If you know how the movie business works now, all the studios are being run by people out of business school. They're not being run by creative people anymore, like in the 70s. So, you know, you have people who... Aren't creative, we don't know how to build something. So their whole concept is well, repackage something that we know already worked before and try to resell it as something new. That's why we're getting remakes and sequels and movies based on video games and things like that, because they don't know how to do anything else. You know, they, they they're not spoilers.
1: Yeah. Well, it's so pre advertising itself. And what I'm trying to do, one of the things I want to do is try and shill some of Dan's screenplays is look, it's the guy who wrote Alien. You don't even have to advertise it. All you do is put that up there. But they're not <laughs> So, what can I do? Trying to cash in, but nobody's buying. Matt, Matt, today. <laughs>
3: it's okay. Matt, let's take a let's take a little left-hand turn here real quick. Sure. And talk about how you met Dan uh, in grad school and yeah. how that blossomed into you working on this book after his death.
0: Well, I met Dan in 2001. I was a graduate student at a school called Chapman University, uh, which is in Orange County, California. And uh, I was working on my thesis project. My thesis advisor was Leonard Schrader, uh, who probably is best known as the brother of Paul Schrader, who wrote Taxi Driver and Raging Bull. Right. And yeah, Leonard, yeah. Leonard's main credit that most people know him from is the screenplay for the film Kiss of the Spider Woman, for which he was nominated for an Academy Award in 1985. Well, yeah. Julia, right. Yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah. William Hurt won the Academy Award for Best Actor for that performance. Right. And Leonard that that fall came to us and said, uh, our filmmaker residence at our school right now is working on a how-to book on screenwriting, and he's looking for a grad student to assist him with the book, do some research, help him out with some film analyses and such. And he mentioned the name that it was Dan O'Bannon. And I didn't need to be told who Dan O'Bannon was. I grew up reading Fangoria. I grew up yeah, Starlog magazine. Dan was Dan was a known commodity to me, and I all the my, for them. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. It's that that, was, that magazine was my my bread and butter when I was a kid, and you know, Dan and I. All my fellow classmates said this is a great fit for you, Matt. You should do this. So I had Leonard put me in touch with Dan, and we talked, and I just decided to you know we got together to see if kind of it was a good fit. And it was a little complicated for me logistically because Dan at the time, I think Diane and you guys were living in Pacific Palisades at the time. Yeah. And I was living in Orange County and I had no car. So whenever I actually got together with Dan, the entire time we were working directly on the book, I had to like rent a car for a couple of days. Because I didn't have an automobile that entire time. So I remember going up to meet Dan and you know arriving sort of midday. And Dan and I, you know, when we first met we talked for about three minutes or so. And Dan kind of looks me up and down, and he says, "Matt, let me ask you something. Have you ever taken any psychedelic drugs?" <laughs> and, and I said, uh, "I said, no, sir. I can't say that I have." And Dan says, "I didn't think so. You look like Clark Kent." And um, that was my introduction to Dan O'Bannon. And um, fortunately, the fact that I looked like Clark Kent apparently wasn't a problem. And we ended up working together on the book for about two years after that. And uh, it, was, it was a really interesting experience. You know, it was very much... Because a lot of people ask me, well, you know, what did you learn from Dan? What did he teach you? And what I remind them was Dan wasn't there to teach me anything. I wasn't there as a student of his. I was there to help him teach other people. But screenwriting was so innate in Dan by that point that I feel like I almost learned a lot just by osmosis. It was almost like just being in the room with him. And hearing him, how he thought about story and the way he discussed story, I learned so much just by being in his presence. It was very much sort of a student at the feet of the master kind of a relationship. Uh, one of the best experiences I had with him was at one point when I was working with him, and this was after you guys moved to Culver City, Diana, mm-hmm. uh, I arrived to find him putting a videotape in. He, he had a VHS player at that time, so it shows you how long we worked on this book. Uh, and he was putting a tape in, and it was a tape, tape of Return of the Living Dead. It was getting ready to come out on DVD in an anniversary edition. And they'd sent over a tape so he could check the color timing on it. And he asked me if I wanted to look at some of it and make sure the color looked okay. And I basically was treated to a live director's commentary track. And Dan kind of told me stories about all the people he'd worked on the film with. He explained to me how a lot of the special effects were done. And it was really just a great experience. Um, Shortly after that, we worked together for about two years. And Dan... Unfortunately, he had battled health problems on and off for a large period of his life and took something of a turn for the worse. And he passed away in, it was around this time of year, uh, in 2009, shortly before the holidays. And, uh, but, you know, Diane and I had kept in touch through that. She was kind of my connection to Dan while well, he was sort of in and out of various treatment centers. And in early 2011, I guess it was, Diane approached me and let me know that um, Michael Weesey Productions, the folks that published Save the Cat and Your Screenplay Sucks and a lot of other books, we were interested in putting out Dan's book, but felt that the manuscript wasn't quite 100% there and they needed somebody to do a little polishing, finish off a couple of sections. And I knew the material better than anybody. I'd worked with Dan for two years and asked me if I would take it on. And at that point, I spent out another year, I believe, on the manuscript. And it came out uh, just last January, January 2013.
1: Yeah, just a year. Just a year now.
2: Well, I mean, we were talking about how much other writers who I shall not name again <clears throat> fail at their jobs. <laughs> and as I, I, I'm going to be honest, I didn't get a chance to read the book cover to cover yet. And I, I mean, not having an interest in being a screenwriter, I'm not sure. Well, actually, you know, I take that back. I am sure I'd get a lot out of it after just flipping through it. I think anyone could get a lot out of this. Um, and, and it wasn't what I expected. At all. I don't know what I expected, but this wasn't it.
1: Yeah. Um, it, uh, it, it's full of uh, really good advice. It If you read it, you could be a much better film critic than you were before, honestly. <laughs>
2: yeah,
1: well. Oh, I mean, it gives you the basis for, like, you know, why am I not satisfied with this or why do I think this is a piece of crap? And you can go, I know why it's a piece of crap, because it didn't do this or this. you know. Exactly. And that's exactly the
2: reason that I think Dan was the person to write this book, well, and Matt, but he, you know what I mean, um, is because clearly he's brought his expertise in writing and managing the flow of a screenplay into this book, because even even just flipping through and reading random paragraphs at a time, every single random paragraph grabs me and it makes me want to know more about what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. Oh,
1: thank you. Fabulous. That's a
2: yeah. Not one sentence in here is not interesting. I, I mean, even flipping through the table of contents is freaking interesting. Like, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm flipping through the table of contents and I see Citizen Kane, okay, whatever, uh, and then Dumb and Dumber.
3: Okay, whatever, I love that.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, well, it's a book about screenplays, it's a book about film, I see Citizen Kane, I'm not surprised. Why would I be surprised? It's Citizen Kane. I'm not surprised, you know. And then I see, okay, King Lear, and then uh, Psycho.
0: One oh, thing that okay. a lot of folks—One thing a lot of folks have mentioned to me that grabs them is there's a moment in the King Lear section where we draw a comparison between King Lear and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Which, <laughs> if you understand the principles of classical tragedy and what classical tragedy is. It makes perfect sense. I can see that. Yeah, classical tragedy is meant to evoke pity and terror through yes. things like suffering, open wounds in plain view. And I we actually drew the comparison that you can sort of sum up the conflicts between the characters in a lot of Shakespeare with the tagline on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre poster, which is, who will survive and what will be left of them? And, you know, it's funny, when people, when people think you're putting those two works together, they think there's no comparison, and then you read it, and people are just usually like, oh, okay. And, they, and I think they understand at that moment how deeply Dan gets it, how deeply he gets story and understands how these things all go together. And that's one of the reasons that we wanted to include something like Dumb and Dumber. Because Dumb and Dumber is using the same storytelling principles as something like Citizen Kane. It, regardless of how it's using them and how well it's using them, it's trying to tell a story using the same mechanisms, with something like Citizen Kane is using, and something like King Lear, because we also went back to theater, because Dan wanted to show that not only do the, as the storytelling process worked all through cinema, it's worked prior to cinema. It's worked... Well prior to cinema. I mean, there's a whole section where we discuss Aristotle. We go back to poetics. And Dan discusses how these storytelling principles were in use even then. And how you can look at what's... uh, There's a a book out now on the market called Aristotle's Poetics for Screenwriters. So these are principles that were written 3,000 years ago in Greek that still hold water today in certain certain aspects.
2: And I think it's a common pitfall of certain maybe non-traditional types of writing is to go for the X writing writing for X, be it screenplays or comics or, you know, video games or how to write for this, and less of an emphasis on how to write.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, the funny thing is, I mean, Dan, Dan actually says in his book that he, he's not writing a book to teach you necessarily how to write well because he doesn't even know if that's necessarily something you can teach. But you'll notice when you read the, if, if you, once you read the whole book through, he, he doesn't discuss dialogue barely at all. Uh, because it's just something that And it's generally considered common knowledge That dialogue is generally considered To be something you really can't teach It's something you kind of have to develop an ear for But he does just think speak. that there's certain s- Principles you can use That you can use And that you can you can use to teach
2: It's it not um, so much the writing itself As constructing a story
0: Absolutely right. and, those are, and those are things that are very easy to do If you understand how it works Dan draws the comparison to a blueprint Because a blueprint, if you're building a house, if you tell an architect, if you say, give me a blueprint for a house, a blueprint for a house is a very solid concept of what that represents. It's a sketch showing what the house is going to be. But if you ask, I am pay, give me a blueprint for a house, you're going to get something very different than if you ask Le Corbusier, give me a blueprint for a house. And it's the same thing with screenwriting. If you go to Woody Allen and tell me, write me a screenplay, You're going to get something that, um, in the details and the filigrees and the characters is going to be very very different than if you tell David Mamet, "Give me a screenplay." But if you break, yeah, but (laughs) if you break the stories down, they're doing the same stuff. Oh yeah, just implementing the the sort of decoration in a different way. But the stories are told the very same way, and that's another reason we also mixed up genre. We didn't want people to necessarily think. Oh, Dan wrote science fiction and horror films, so this is only a book that's going to make sense if you write those genres.
2: Exactly, exactly. We- and, and you could have the the best, uh, I'm going to call what, what Dan put down here is maybe a foundation for a screenplay. You can have the most solid foundation, and if you're a crappy writer, no one will still buy it. But if you are an amazing writer and you don't have a good foundation, no one will still buy it unless you wrote uh, Transformers.
0: Well, the interesting thing is
2: the way, Hollywood works,
0: the way Hollywood works now is there's a lot of people that make a good living just on a specialty. Because I talked about dialogue before. There's some people that can't structure a story for shit who are great dialogue writers. And they'll have a script that's well put together, but the dialogue is flat. So they'll bring in somebody and just say, we need a dialogue polish on this. Can you yep. punch up the dialogue? Carrie Fisher does a lot of that. Carrie Fisher is a really well-regarded script doctor because she writes great dialogue.
2: So oh, my God, books. I could totally yeah. see that. She's so mouthy. Oh, well, her
3: books, no, her books
2: yeah. are I could totally dialogue. see that. Yeah, so yeah, a absolutely. lot of times she'll be, she'll be
0: brought in to do dialogue polishes. Uh, conversely, there are people who are really strong story people, who are really strong structure people. You get it in comedy a lot, too. There's a lot of people, you, you hear the term gagman thrown around a lot. Yep. It's like, well, he can't tell a story, but he knows funny stuff. So they'll basically come in to put in the jokes, so to speak, and make it funny. You know, and and so you can actually make a very good living doing that. There's a lot of people that make a great living doing, you know, getting paid $200,000 for two weeks' work on a script that they don't get credit on, but they just polished all the dialogue on. You know, Carrie Fisher's been dining out on that for years. You know, it's a nice way to make a living if you can do it.
3: Wow. You know, it's funny because in that very first uh, chapter when uh, Dan is talking about... Uh, isn't there a book? <laughs> yeah, where where you could just figure out the plots. And uh. Please tell me that the the Plato method actually exists. Is that a real I, book? I have Dan's copy
0: of Plato. Diane oh, Sweet Jesus. Shortly, shortly after the book came out. I have, and that little passage of Plato that's in that book. Yeah, that's the whole goddamn book. That's what that book is like. <laughs> For, for something like
3: 225 pages of that is what is what Plato is. Conflicts fall into the following general classifications. Now comes a
1: fucking list, and oh my God, and I'm sitting here reading. Yeah, it's, it, it's almost crazy. It's almost crazy. You think, who, who would have sat down to write this garbage? But there it is. I mean, people have been struggling this for a long time. I think out of uh, sheer frustration after 40 years of writing, my dear husband said, "Well, what can I say about it after all of these years, and after studying all this stuff, and here it is? So it's a really, uh, although it's it's a really accessible book if you'll understand it. It's not; it's very erudite. Also, I mean, if you want to know about Aristotle, if you want all everybody's theory of story." Condensed, It's right there in the book. And then Dan takes off from those things and gives you the what he's discovered after all of this time. I can't tell you this. Nobody can guarantee you got a, a hit. You got this and that. But I can guarantee you if you follow these simple rules and look for this stuff, you'll have a story that works to take a person from the beginning to, of your tale to the end of it. It gives them chills and thrills and leaves them satisfied. And I think that's... I don't know if anybody could do any darn better. I think well, I'm not sure they
2: could, because, and let me, not to correct you, but I don't think he just says, here it is. Because I think throughout this book, you are, if not begged, asked very politely to think critically. <laughs> well, yes. and And there are, in fact, little blanks for you to actually write in what you think. You are asked to think, and you're no one's checking this this is not a quiz this is not high school
3: but it kind of is in a way because but, but it's, it's formatting it in a way because
2: when when you actually physically write something different processes are going on in your brain than if you're just reading through and going yeah whatever okay you actually have to sit there and think about what you're writing why, are, why am i writing this it's a much different process, and it's a process that makes it easier to actually think about why you think that's the answer, which is a key um, concept that's missing, I think, in our educational system.
0: Yeah. It's, a key, it's, it's a key concept in storytelling in general. Uh, a lot of times when you, if you've studied screenwriting, if you've studied storytelling, they always say the central question that you need to answer is, what does the hero want? But I've always thought that that is only half of the question that you actually need to ask. The question that you need to ask is, what does the hero want, and why does the hero want it? And in that why is where you get character. That's where you get the inner life of the person. Like, what does Indiana Jones want in the Raiders of the Lost Ark? He wants to find the, whole, the, the Lost Ark of the Covenant. But why does he want it? He wants it because, for a number of reasons. He wants it because he wants to be the greatest archaeologist in the world. He wants it because he wants to rescue his country from an old and evil. He wants it because he wants to help stick it to the Nazis. He wants it because he wants to impress Marion. He wants it for a lot of different things. And all of these things teach us a little bit of something about who Indiana Jones is. And that's one of the reasons why that's a brilliant screenplay. Why Lawrence Kasdan and Philip Kaufman did such a great job conceiving that and putting that together. Why Indiana Jones is one of the memorable screen heroes of all time. Uh, because it's and, and it's not belabored, it's not like Indy sits there and says I want to do this because I want to be a great archaeologist and and get the girl. He lets us all see it through just the things that he does and the choices that he makes through action. It's really beautifully done. Right. Yeah. And any movie that knows what it's doing does that and does it well.
4: And there's too few of those out there right
0: now. Oh my god. I mean, well, I'll give you an example from the summer. Uh, I, I'm, I'm assuming you guys probably all saw the film Pacific Rim? Yes. yes. Pacific Rim was a tricky thing for me because I really enjoyed Pacific Rim. It's a lot of fun to watch. The special effects are great. But I remember saying to my companion after I saw the movie, I said, you know, there's a difference in a film between characters you care about and characters you only like. Because I liked everybody in Pacific Rim. I didn't dislike any of the people. But I didn't really care about any of them. I didn't care about what their struggles were. I wasn't particularly invested in the conflicts that they were dealing with. So, it made it somewhat of a sense of what I felt like, at moments, I was just marking time between robots beating up monsters again. Which, okay, you know, Yeah. that. Yeah, robots beating, the robots beating up monsters were good enough that I was willing to sit through the stuff with the characters, because there's movies that that is ruined. I don't know if you guys remember Clash of the Titans from a couple of years ago. <laughs> oh, the remake.
4: Oh, God, that was bad.
0: <laughs> I remember watching that movie with somebody, and, then, and I told them, I can review that movie in one sentence. It's a two-hour movie that feels three-and-a-half hours long, <laughs> populated entirely, entirely by characters I either disliked or didn't care about. Everybody in that movie, I either actively disliked them or I had no investment whatsoever in what was going on there you that. Go. So There It's funny because it's,
3: it's so very much like my them, review of Judge Dredd. The, uh, the very first one was Sylvester Stallone. It was one word, why. <laughs> well, it's funny because
0: I, 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 on my blog that I write, which is called The Movie Zombie, uh, every year when I do my bottom five film of the year, my five worst, I give an award for the movie that I got the least out of watching in the previous year. I call it the, <laughs> I call it, I call it the Human Centipede Award for what I think are probably uh. really <laughs> obvious reasons. Oh, nice. and, and I actually gave my Human Centipede Award last year to the Pete Travis directed version of Dread, which I described as... Grimy, cold, bloody, and senselessly violent. Um, which, so I was not a fan of, you know, necessarily that version of Judge Dread. Really, I'm unfortunately. But okay, um,
4: now you have to tell us what this years are. Uh,
0: oh, the, the Human Centipede award? Yes, I yeah, went, I went. I went kind of weird with the Human Centipede this wor- award this year. My pick for that actually is a, a documentary, um, and it's it's a shame because it's a movie about a guy that I admire, who I'm a fan of, and I know Diane knows his work. There was a documentary earlier this year about Harry Dean Stanton, the character actor. Really? It's, yeah, it's called Harry Dean Stanton Partly... Don't get too excited. And it's called uh, Harry Dean Stanton Partly Fiction. And I, I have a cardinal rule with movies. One of my cardinal rules with cinema is you can't fake depth. There's nothing worse than a movie that is trying to be profound. And that movie is about an hour and 20 minutes of uh, of them throwing their back out, trying to be meaningful. And it is just absolutely stultifying. (laughs) I I walked out of that theater, and all I I got out of watching that movie was rid of about 14 bucks. That was all I got. It's not the worst movie I saw this year. The worst movie I saw this year was a film called Austin Land with uh, Kerry Russell. And it's basically a, a movie about a young lady who's like a huge Jane Austen fan and she goes to a Jane Austen fantasy camp in England. And it was um, it was written and co-written and directed by Jerusha Hess, who was one of the people that made Napoleon Dynamite, and co-produced by everybody's favorite vampire writer, Stephanie Meyer. Oh. And, and Christ, is it awful. It, it almost... I almost don't want to put it number one because it's just such a wispy, inconsequential nothing of a movie that it almost doesn't deserve that because I could have beat up on Man of Steel more and put that in my number one slot because that's my number two because that movie was also a complete waste of time. X but, is going to um, be so happy.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. Why, what, you, do what, you have Man of Steel backers in your crew? No, he
4: hated that movie. He
1: hated no. the
4: last one and he hated no. this
0: one. I would honestly, if you put me in a room with Superman Returns and Man of Steel, I would watch Superman Returns
3: again first. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a burn. Yeah, it was that's, it was that's good. That had to be painful to say.
0: <laughs> <laughs> listen, listen, I have to speak truth. I have to speak truth when I see it. The
1: movie zombie up. never lies.
0: It's a problem. It's a problem if you're sitting watching a Superman movie and you're saying, boy, I can't wait until they get back to Ma and Pa, Ken. That's the best stuff in us he's <laughs> the best thing in that movie he's the only thing in that movie they don't have to make apologies for in my opinion I thought I thought Henry Cavill was flat I thought Michael Shannon was flat it just it did not work Russell Crowe's fine he's saddled with the silliest stuff in the movie um,
3: Russell I mean, Crowe's I mean, fine but exactly he yeah, I mean, hasn't got a decent I mean, line in the entire movie
0: well, he's playing Basil Exposition, basically. He's playing the guy who's there just... Because Dan has a great section in the book on how to write exposition, which is one of the hardest things to write well. That idea where you have to have characters giving you information without feeling like all they're doing is talking to you. you see a lot of movies where characters are having conversations and you're sitting there thinking, I know this stuff, or, or they should know these things already. Well, as you know, I'm your brother, and as your brother, and
2: the see, <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> even better when it's not a conversation, and they're just, "Why did I say that?"
0: Yeah, exactly, <laughs> because they're not talking, because they're not talking to each other. They're talking to the audience. They're telling right. the audience stuff that the audience has to know. And Dan has a section where he talks about Alien, because Alien was a big problem for him, because he had this whole subplot where these, you know, the guys were space miners, and it was this idea of, well, how do I? teach the audience about the mining. How do I teach them what they're mining for and how it works and the equipment? And Dan says, I, I finally realized at one point, hey, this isn't a movie about mining. It's a movie about people who are being you know, stalked by an alien. So just sort of give this to you subtextually, give it to you in a tossed off way. And there's that brilliant opening sequence in Alien, that scene where after they're thought out, they're all having dinner together. And I love that scene because it's just so off-handed. They're all talking over each other. It's a very 70s scene. It's like I, I've always said. It's like something out of a Robert Altman film, and, and Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott just helms it so beautifully, where it's just the camera's kind of a passive observer. It's back against the wall. It's not imposing on the conversation, yep. and we see. We don't get a lot of overt exposition. But from that scene, we know everything we need to know about the relationships between everybody on that crew. We know that they know each other, and they know each other well. We know who gets along. We know who's sick of each other. It's so beautifully done. I think it's such a a beautiful piece of writing and directing and acting on everybody's part. I mean, and Diane and I have talked many times about just how fortuitous it was that that cast came together for that film. Yes. Because everybody in that cast is just so spot on for right what they need to be for those roles
2: well i mean i think in summary here what we've got is this and it's not a long book it's it's under 300 pages it's it's a pretty slim volume but it's clearly written by two people who know what the fuck they're talking about which is so often not the case in today's world, (laughs) which is so sadly not the case in today's world. It's written in a way that it can't help but grab your attention, even if you have no interest whatsoever in anything to do with movies.
1: Dumb? No? You know, thank you very much for that. Um... I think it deserves a wide audience. Uh, e- even if you're not a writer, uh, you're just a consumer of media, which everybody is. Something Dan says in the books is, is that uh, the concept of entertainment should be understood um, liberally. Um, you know, there's a lot of new new ways of being entertained coming down the pike, and uh, but everybody who tries to entertain you should have some rules to go by to give, uh, give their audience the satisfaction of a good story.
2: Well, I mean... First of all, I, I know a few people who's uh, who are going to find this under their tree next year, honestly. Oh. <laughs> because, I, I mean, they they try hard, and they want to do yes, a good I job. Be,
0: I would be breaking into people's
4: homes and leaving it.
2: Yes, uh, you so. should. But you should would, say, uh, yes. Yeah,
4: I could not send that without an address on it to Neil Gaiman, so stop it. You will never know if I
2: do or not. <laughs> <laughs> I am...
0: I've talked to so many people over the last year who were like, you need to get a copy of this to Damon Lindelof, people that saw Prometheus. Because Diane and I have talked to so many people about Prometheus over the course of the last
3: year. God, there's a whole other hour's worth yeah. right there. Oh, yeah.
0: well, well, if you go to the Michael Weesey Productions website for the book, Diane and I actually did a, a video podcast. Uh, we did basically a, sort of a, a webinar about Prometheus, about Prometheus versus alien and kind of the things in the movie that don't work and the things that Alien does that Prometheus doesn't do. So, we've, we've talked about that subject at, at great length and we get asked about it a lot, as you can imagine. Right. Because it's something that we, um, yeah, I, I remember going to see it. It was one of those things where I was like, I better see this. I'm going to be getting questions about this film. So, I better see it like ASAP when I can. Um, it's a beautiful looking movie, but, you know, Ridley Scott, he needs a good script. He's one of those people, you know, you can't necessarily count on him to carry the picture if the writing's not there.
1: Mm. As the
0: counselor, I think, proved earlier this, uh, this year with uh, you know, dying and ignominious death and being called by the salon critic the worst movie he's ever seen made by people this talented. Um, and, <laughs> you know, Ridley Scott's obviously a talented guy, but if you get writing that doesn't work, you know, what are you going to do? You know,
2: Matt, I, I mean, I, this, this whole book is just like it doesn't it doesn't read like someone trying to teach you something if that makes sense it read- I, I well
0: Diana and I have talked about one thing I think will surprise people is how funny the book is um yeah absolutely well it, it reads
2: like you're sitting in your living room with your friend who just happens to be this brilliant screenwriter, and he is sitting there having a conversation with you telling you why some things are good and other things are bad and what would make the bad things better. And now it's occurring to me that that's probably what happened.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Dan, worked, Dan worked very hard in his writing, all of his writing, to be very, uh, to be very direct and person-to-person person about it. He worked hard to write that way. And, and it's very
2: personal and there's a very strong voice to the writing. It's not it's not pretentious at all, it's not overly explanatory, it doesn't treat you like you're a moron, it doesn't treat you like you're a child, it doesn't treat you like you should know all this already,
3: yeah. it's, it's simply... It,
2: what
3: it, what it, it gives you a passionate discourse in
1: how to do it better. Thank you, oh. Dom, that's, that's a lovely thing to say. Passionate. It really does. Passionate so. discourse. It's a beautiful thing to say. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. And i, I got to tell you, we could do
3: this for another two hours, another two days, and, and I'd love to have you guys back on the show at some point real soon to talk about the book some more, to talk about current trends in media, talk about how things are going on. Can we have you back soon? We'd Absolutely. love to.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And Matt is the movie zombie. is He's always up on everything if you want a voice about yeah. it. It's,
0: it's the moviezombie.blogspot.com.
2: Um, and we'll have a good link to that in the show notes as well. Yeah,
0: I just post I just posted Absolutely. my review this morning of The Wolf of Wall Street, which I saw yesterday and oh. which I think is one of the best films of the year. Oh
1: i <laughs> Yeah. 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 So, so now, anyhow <laughs> Well thank you. So much Good for on. having us. Um. It was
2: it was an absolute pleasure, Kriana. Yes. Are we off next week? We have no show next week. Happy New Year's, everyone. What do we have after that? After up? that. On the 11th, we have Frankie B. Washington and James Biggie joining us to talk about the Robot God Akamatsu trade paperback. Uh On the 18th, Aaron Wood shares his industrial design propaganda art. On the 25th, legendary artist Griffin S., who did send me my art. Thank you, Griffin, but Dome's still waiting for his. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what's coming up for the next month, dead redhead. Sci-Fi Saturday Night is the official podcast
4: of Boston Comic-Con, GraniteCon, Rhode Island Comic-Con, and ComicArtHouse.com. Visit ComicArtHouse.com for the best deals and original art from dozens of your favorite artists. Tonight's outro music provided by The Traffic Lights. Pick up their
3: CD, Hold Folk, at RobotsOnline.com. Doom! You know, some days when we have absolutely no news, we have incredibly cool guests, as we did tonight, that make the hour just fly past. Thank you guys so much. And I want to thank the cast for, once again, another incredible year. How we keep doing this, I don't know. From the Revere Time Vortex, the sweetheart of the soundboard, Kriana, and our Grammar Girl, Sombrarian, thank you, ladies.
2: Insert Woody phrase here.
3: (laughs) (laughs) From the Four Color Vault of Comics, Dead Redhead, Happy birthday, darling.
4: Thank you. I'm officially a squared number this year.
3: So. <laughs> <laughs> this is Dome saying, ow, and also saying, genie, shared pain is lessened, <laughs> shared joy is increased. Thus do we all refute entropy. Good night, everyone.